The first reading comes to us from Psalm 72, 1 through 7, and then 10 through 14. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, get deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures, as long as the moon, throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations give him service. For he delivers the needy when they call, and the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word so I too can pay my respects. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of the Lord. A few days ago, my friend, our friend, Jamie Lynn Haskins, who usually sits right about there, texted me a picture of her beloved dog, Bernie. We all know Bernie. Laying in bed, with her head on the pillow and her soft, sweet eyes looking up into the camera as if to say, are we done yet? I don't want to get up. And I responded back to this text and said, I get it, Bernie. Me either. During the holidays, we have a perplexing combination of busyness and family time and no time and time off and traveling. 
All of this to, to say at Christmas time, as the Christmas season comes to an official end, we can all feel a little bit like Bernie. Hung over from too much busyness, or maybe just hung over, I don't know. Needing just a few more days to decompress and not wanting to get out of bed. But traveling is still very much going on. And on this Sunday, we celebrate the arrival of some other travelers, the wise men, or the magi, who we are told arrived at the home of Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. Now the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the magi. We don't know who they were or where they came from. And while we talk about there being three, we actually don't know. We just assume that there are three because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, by, and somehow by the 5th century, they had actually been given names. We do not know how long it took them to get to Bethlehem or how old Jesus was at the time that they got there. We don't even know a great deal about the infamous star. But not knowing is okay. It's the story that is important. As comparative religion scholar Joseph Campbell has shared, myth is much more important and truer than history. History is just journalism, and we know how reliable that is. In her book, Another Way Home, or Home by Another Way, Barbara Brown Taylor shares her own version of the wise men's story. She writes, Once upon a time there were three, yes, three, very wise men who were all still sitting in their own countries, minding their own business, when a bright star lodged in the right eye of each one of them. It was so bright that none of them could tell whether it was burning in the sky or in their imaginations. But they were so wise, they knew it did not matter all that much. The point was something beyond them was calling them, and it was a tug they had been waiting for all of their lives. Each in his own country had tried books, had tried magic, tried astrology, even reflexology. One had spent his entire fortune learning how to read and write ruins. Another lived on nothing but dry herbs boiled in water. The third could walk on hot coals, but it did nothing for him beyond the great sense of relief he felt in the end. They were all glad for a reason to get out of town, because that was clearly where the star was calling them, out, away from everything they knew how to manage and survive, out from under the reputations that they had built for themselves, the high expectations, the disappointing returns. And so they set out, one by one, 
each believing that he was the only one with a star in his eye until they all ran into one another on the road to Jerusalem. While we may not know who they were or exactly where they were from, we do know that these magi set out on a faithful journey to find out more about their world, about faith, about their own lives and their own hearts. Our story seems to be very clear that they also had an audience with King Herod. And when they met with him, they asked him a question. Where is the child who has been born the Messiah, the King of the Jews? Now I can only imagine how the stomach of King Herod dropped out in this moment. I can imagine him becoming pale and a little woozy, surprised and scared by this question. King Herod, while the king of Israel, was a client king of the Romans. He had a great deal of wealth and authority as long as he didn't displease the Roman overlords. Herod, who wanted to pass on his position, I'm sure, within his own family, had not received news of any recent children that he had had. And I imagine him asking himself, are the Romans upset with my leadership? Who are these wise men and what do they know that I do not? And I can imagine that King Herod took a breath and he dug down deep as any strong leader would to put on his best poker face, his best chess face. He had to hide his anger he had to hide his remonstrance. What is going on? Herod wanted to learn who his new rival might be, so he played along with the Magi. And he questioned these wise men. What makes you think a new king has been born? And the wise men explained their story. And not knowing what the wise men were talking about, Herod asked all the priests and scribes, surely they would know. And indeed, they did. The prophet Micah wrote that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so King Herod said, well, wise men, you're about five miles off. Go to Bethlehem and search there. And if you find anything that resembles a royal baby, please come back and tell me, because I too would like to um, pay my respects. Overcome with joy, the wise men pay their respects. And maybe it was the dream 
Maybe it was Herod's strange attitude when they met with him. Maybe it was both. But the wise men, being wise, didn't trust him. And instead of going back to Herod as he had wished, they headed home by another way. And that foreboding dream came to Joseph too. And he told Mary to never mind the pack and play, but to get Jesus. And they fled to Egypt. And when Herod realized that he had been tricked by the wise men, he slaughtered all the male babies around Bethlehem that were two years or younger. We don't like to include this part of the story in our Christmas story. This part, this sad part, this scary part. We like our Christmas story to conclude nicely with the birth of baby Jesus. We like to mush all the nativities together with the shepherds and the wise men all being there when Jesus was born because I'm sure Mary wanted nothing else than an audience while giving birth. We like to keep our Christmas story clean and tidy and filled with good tidings and filled with good feelings and sugar plums. We want our story to be loving and hopeful and comforting. And well... The slaughtering of the innocents kind of cramps that style. But if we've learned anything as we have explored Advent from the underside, it is that we acknowledge all the tensions that we experience during this season. That we can't always feel joyful or full of peace and hope and love. And we have given ourselves permission to feel whatever we might be experiencing. We tried not to gloss over the hard stuff. We made room for the sadness and pain or the fear. And we have done our best to sit with these feelings without judgment. So too, let us honor our Christmas story. Let us note that it's not just Advent from the underside, but Christmas from the underside too. Let us not amputate the hard, challenging parts that provides context and meaning and gives rise to the love and hope and comfort. Because I think it will be much easier to hold the spirit of Christmas much closer and much longer if we are willing to acknowledge the beauty and the dark realities of it. When we embrace Christmas from the underside, the birth of a child to a teenage unwed mother, and the journey of the wise men, and the monstrous ruler that slaughtered babies, we are reminded that God's power has to contend with the terrible powers and principalities of this world. The world 
hasn't changed so much in 2,000 years. The birth of Jesus still happens into a world of brokenness and political controversies and oppressive forces. When already 2020 is off to a rough start, at least if you're paying attention to the news, our president has killed a top Iranian general. We are on the brink of war with Iran. Our troops, including those very close to home in our own community, like Alex Slesher's son, will be deployed. When Australia is burning and we are ignoring climate change, and this doesn't even take into account our own personal challenges, our 2020, while early, is sprinkled with Herod's. And we can most certainly identify with our friend Bernie the Bernadoodle desiring to just stay in bed a little while longer. I will be honest, I find it difficult to find words of hope. Not just for you, but for myself. I find it easier to hunker down in my social media rants and scroll through my Amazon app to figure out what else I can buy to make myself feel better. Or escape by watching my new binge show called Restoration Man. Than to pay attention and to process what in God's name is happening in our world and wondering what in God's name I can actually do about it. But I am at least able to lower my heart rate for a few moments when I recall the words from the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. He reminds us that God shares it all. That God came in flesh to help us out. That God is with us in any suffering, in all the suffering. And so I am rendered in a few moments of clarity that even though horrors and atrocities are still a part of this world, that the birth of Christ creates the hope that the powers and principalities will not win the day and can, in fact, by God's power and birth in Jesus Christ, be overcome. Like many of us, or maybe not any of us, I was packing up my Christmas decorations this weekend. Pat hasn't gotten to hers yet. And I was removing all of the ornaments off the tree, and I took the wreath off the door, and I packed away the extra lights that were strung through the house. And I thought, well, Christmas is over. But I also thought to myself, what, what can I leave up to remind myself that this story of Christmas isn't actually over? How can I remind myself 
as our Christmas officially comes to a close today with Epiphany, that it's not the client king and the Herods of this world that save. It is not military might that brings peace. But that peace comes through the birth of a child in a stable. How can I remind myself of the chutzpah of the Magi, who courageously sought out questions and explored new lands, who outwitted Herod and tried a different way. A different way home. So while we are packing away our Christmas decorations, what, if anything, will we choose to keep out? So as not to forget the story and the work before us. That God is indeed with us. And that there is light in the darkness. Is it the Advent wreath that proclaims God with us? And that God is the center of our joy and our hope and our peace and love? Is it the nativity set that reminds us that God came in flesh as a vulnerable baby? Is it those extra Christmas lights reminding us that the light of Christ is still very much in the world if we let it? The Feast of Epiphany today brings the Christmas season to an end. But the Christmas story doesn't have to end, nor should it end. So I again leave us with a poem from African-American theologian and educator and civil rights leader Howard Thurman called The Work of Christmas. That when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, and to make music in the heart.